Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, bismillah rahman rahim Welcome to our first in a series of Islamic book reviews. My name is Usama Al-Azami and you're welcome to what is really the inaugural session of what I hope will be a regular uh, series of events in which uh, myself and uh, Dr. Amar Al-Anshasi of the University of Edinburgh will be considering um, sort of literatures that are being published in, in academic presses, inshallah. Um, and Omar is, uh, for those uh, of my academic colleagues who are joining, who will uh, sort of know Omar, um, he is uh, one of the uh, sort of uh, most prolific readers, if that's uh, a way to put it, um, or one of the most uh, notorious bibliophiles of our community of Islamic studies. Um, that, that's what happens when you don't write. You spend that time reading instead. And and I um, am essentially sort of engaged in a conversation with him about what he's reading because I always uh, end up sort of having these wonderful conversations with Omar um, about... This, uh, this does sound like a very self, self-indulgent enterprise, but hopefully people will... will inshallah, I'm, I'm hoping that people will find this a beneficial experience. Um, and essentially um, what we're going to be doing is hopefully on a weekly basis um, going through one maybe two books a week. This week's book is very interesting and uh, Omar has uh, insisted that it be a single book that we look at. And we're going to reflect on what it means for the field um, of Islamic studies. Uh, and also I actually come from a background which is um, a kind of hybrid background. So like Omar, I, I studied Islamic studies at university, um, you know, uh, in, a, in a Western academic context. But I also have um, studied uh, an alimiya um, with the ulama, so to speak. And I also sort of consider myself equally a graduate of that tradition. Uh, so I'm, I'm a doctor and uh, an alim, so to speak. And so for me, a lot of these questions, a lot of these books really um, are of interest on a theological plane, so to speak. And I think, uh, I hope that's where I can contribute. I want to do a bit of a better introduction of Omar. Um, I'll keep it brief. Omar has warned me against um, florid introductions. And then I'll introduce myself, and then inshallah, we'll, uh, um, Omar can introduce the book that we're looking at this week. Um, so Omar is a graduate of Queen Mary University, um, uh, the University of London. Um, your undergraduate and your postgraduate studies uh, up to the PhD level were studied there, and he worked on Fazlur Rahman, um, a noted sort of modern uh, Islamic thinker. Um, but uh, his interests are far broader and far wider than that. Um, we will be mentioning the name of the book in just a moment, but uh, his interests are far broader and wider than that, as will be reflected hopefully in the series that we're looking at. And currently he's a postdoctoral fellow uh, at uh, the University of Edinburgh. Um, and I myself, am, uh, as I mentioned already, uh, also sort of studied in Islamic studies, although Omar is technically a historian, so you, you went and studied history. I went into um, sort of oral studies, uh, a problematic name we all know, uh, at the University of Oxford. We're actually at the university considering sort of uh, a name change, but that, that's a whole other discussion. And uh, I, um, alongside my undergraduate studies in um, Arabic and Islamic studies, that was the subset of Oriental studies that I was looking at, um, I also studied an alimiya. And then I continued and did a PhD um, in, across the Atlantic uh, at Princeton University, um, and I was looking at contemporary Islamism. Uh, but that's not really sort of the center, that's a whole other discussion. I'm not going to go into it right now. Um, and the book that we're going to look at, and 
we actually got in touch with the author who's a close friend of us is lived islam colloquial religion in a cosmopolitan tradition hot off the press i think it was published in june and Omar is going to introduce in just a moment. April, perhaps even April, but anyway, over the a few months ago. And um, it's written by Kevin Reinhardt, who's a, um, a, mutual, a mutual friend of my, myself and Omar. And Kevin has kindly, we sent him an email saying that we were going to do this sort of uh, reflection on his book, and he kindly said that he would try to join. So um, I hope, Kevin, you're here. But um, I should finally say before handing over to Omar, that the comments actually come through <clears throat> to us. So please feel free to um, send in questions midstream. We'll try and uh, accommodate as many of them as possible in our discussion. Um, and it should make for an in interesting engagement as well. Um, but uh, thank you, uh, Chad, uh, for um, sort of your comment. Um, Aisha Saeed, uh, I've just mentioned the name of the book. And uh, I will be occasionally referring to the comments as and when is uh, sort of uh, when these sorts of questions come through. And I can see Kevin's actually just uh, saying he's here and thank you for doing this. And it's our pleasure. This uh, you know, really sounds like a, a fantastically important book. And I'm going to hand over Omar to, who's the sort of expert on this right now, um, well, to <laughs> comment. Kevin uh, I mean, notwithstanding. Yes. All right. But I, I felt uh, when, when Osama first proposed this idea a few weeks ago, uh, I felt we should begin with a book that, uh, you know, reflecting our, our ambitions for this series is uh, broad in scope, ambitious in terms of what it wants to achieve. And uh, in my opinion, having, having spent some time with it, is, is, is the kind of book that com one comes across uh, perhaps once every few years uh, that speaks to everyone in, in the field of Islamic studies and indeed uh, beyond the field. I'm sure those working on other religious traditions and more generally would, would be, uh, profit from reading the book. Um, but it's a book that seeks to explain a great deal and develops a particular conceptual scheme, a tripartite scheme for doing so. Uh, and to begin, the book, which is called Lives Islam, uh, sorry, Lived Islam, Colloquial Religion in a Cosmopolitan Tradition, really seeks to account for the tremendous and even bewildering diversity one encounters in Islam as it is actually practiced uh, in the world. And, and Reinhardt appeals to the category of uh, lived religion, which is to say uh, increasingly popular among uh, scholars of religious studies, anthropologists and others. Um, lived religion is the kind of religion you would encounter in everyday life in different contexts. It is uh, the uh, Islam for our purposes uh, of those who do not professionally write about Islam, although uh, indeed what theologians and others write is also uh, of, of considerable interest and, and Reinhardt draws on it a great deal. Now, in what sense is, uh, yes, I mean, the book cover is a very colorful, colorful and, and brilliantly chosen image, which reflects this diversity in a very visible way. So it's, it's a charming image. Um, what the book seeks to account for is the, again, this bewildering diversity among Muslims and the fact that notwithstanding this uh, diversity, Muslims still see and recognize one another as Muslims, and scholars are still able to relate these variant uh, divergent practices uh, to something 
uh, that, that all Muslims have in common or most Muslims have in common. Uh, so Reinhardt develops a tripartite scheme for conceptualizing this diversity and uh, reflecting its, its kind of layeredness. Uh, so the, the kind of key concept at the heart of this book or the, the key um, typology or conceptual framework Reinhardt develops, which I think is an incredibly uh, fruitful one that, that other scholars can, can benefit from, is uh, he draws on the, langu uh, the, the language and the terminology of sociolinguistics. So uh, how does one understand and conceptualize the varieties in language? You know, and as a, as, a, as a member of the faculty here at the University of Edinburgh, it's something I, I, I did think about a lot when I first came here, when you see conversations between uh, members of the administrative staff who are normally locally recruited, some of them speaking quite thick Scotch accents, and uh, the faculty, which is very international and very diverse, and it was always uh, quite entertaining to see Americans struggling to understand <laughs> Scottish colleagues. Um, so that's something I've thought about myself. And how does he operationalize these kind of distinctions when thinking about Islam as a lived religion? Reinhardt speaks about dialect, koine, and standard forms of Islam. These are um, forms of Islam that, that kind of feature prominently in different contexts. and. Um, Always, uh, Reinhardt has has an eye towards you know regional particularism as distinct from say this high scholarly tradition. Uh, now, I should probably just uh, take a moment to explain exactly what what these distinctions mean in, in a meaningful sense. Um, Koine, uh, sorry, dialect Islam. If you think about uh, dialects in terms of languages as well, is the uh, Islam that is practiced in a particular context in a particular time and place. Uh, and, uh, you know, we have many excellent scholarly accounts of dialect Islam, whether by anthropologists, missionaries, and even cosmopolitan uh, scholarly critics of uh, Bidah and so on. And, and there's a big literature on this, of course. And dialect Islam is what one actually finds in a particular context that would not necessarily be recognized by other Muslims in other contexts uh, and may even seem, ab seem abhorrent to them. And in the pre-modern world, uh, one doesn't need to go far to find, find examples of dialect Islam. Uh, and, and Can I just interrupt you very briefly and, and sort of uh, ask you specifically, you mentioned bid'ah. Uh, did I hear that correctly? So yes. you're basically saying that the dialect Islam is a type of Islam which is very often very variegated, it's not necessarily a part of standard Islam, so to speak. Precisely. Um, so, a break away from that. And as a consequence exactly. of that, it, it gets questioned as, oh, this is this truly Islam? This is bid'ah, etc. Okay. Yeah, so, so and, and I'll elaborate that at, at, at greater length shortly. But to return to the, the simile of language, um, compare, for instance, standard English as spoken by presenters on BBC News to, uh, for example, the dialect of English one finds in, in, in darkest Glasgow, as it were. Um, now, to uh, a proponent of standard English, which is, 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 is an English that really exists, it, we're mostly in textbooks, you know, it's the kind of English one teaches uh, foreigners, um, but it is a, a language that 
is not really one spoken or, or native tongue, as it were. It is a sort of construct. Uh, and it is beyond place and beyond uh, any of these these local particularistic features. Now, there's, so a saying, like, there's a saying that a good public school education in the UK means that you cannot be geographically placed. Yes, precisely. Now, of course, uh, this standard privileges a certain form of the language and marginalizes others. And, and Reinhardt discusses now. Uh, so, dialect is this local particularistic form of Islam. Uh, Koine unlike dialect, is recognized uh, by the majority of Muslims, the vast majority of the Muslims, and across time and space. It is the, the, the Islam uh, that is kind of broadly shared by Muslims, but it is always and already locally inflected or contextually inflected. And, and Reinhardt gives a number, number of examples of these, uh, one great uh, instance being the Hajj, now, the Hajj is a norm, or at least the idea of the Hajj, shared broadly among Muslims. Of course, there are, you can always find marginal groups of those who identify as Muslims but do not identify with any of these broadly shared ideas, and, and Reinhardt recognizes that explicitly. Uh, but nonetheless, broadly shared but locally inflected. So what it actually means in a particular context to a particular set of persons is, is also something that's subject to variety. And uh, here and in the book more generally, the, the, so many rich examples illustrating this uh, great variety are given, uh, often citing anthropological literature, which Reinhardt is uh, very much, uh, you know, has a great facility with. Uh, so, for instance, if you think of the Had, uh, he gives an example of a Malaysian pilgrim um, for whom the Hajj is really about accumulating barakah, and it, it, it's, it's, it's only secondarily about performing these rites that you find discussed at great length in, in works of Islamic law, or furur. Uh, but, uh, for instance, for, for Malcolm X, the Hajj is pri always primarily about uh, racial unity and, uh, and endless other iterations of this, of this variety. So the dialect is the, the highly localized and particularistic that would not be recognized broadly across the one may even be seen as, as abhorrent by, by, uh, by others. Right. And the koine is shared uh, and is nonetheless always already inflected uh, in particular contexts. Now, again, returning to this uh, simile of, of, of lived religion as language, um, koine being the uh, lingua franca in much of the Near East in, uh, in, uh, in, in, the ancient, in the Hellenistic world. So again, it's not a language that you would have necessarily spoken at home. It's, it's the language of the, uh, of the Gospels, uh, but it is broadly shared by, by many groups. And finally, uh, the third, uh, and uh, for, in, from my perspective as, as an Islamicist who spends a great deal of time engaging with this particular form of Islam as a religion, there is standard or cosmopolitan Islam. And this, by contrast with the other forms, is the Islam of no particular place mm -hmm. and no particular time. Like standard language, it kind of projects a universality and you know, certain kinds of, of myth um, of universality or associated, not myth, not in a derogatory sense, of sure. course, or associated with, with this particular form of Islam. And this is the Islam of uh, the, the prestige Islam of the scholars. Right. It is um, the, uh, a kind of body of ilm, 
and the purveyors of standard Islam are the masters of this textual tradition and its authorized but, uh, kind of hermeneutical techniques and resulting uh, interpretations. And of course, in a sense, uh, in the academy is been the main focus of study. And it's the sort of stuff that I would have studied in a seminary or Darul Ulum context. Of course, and um, uh, Reinhardt is, is aware of the kind of pedagogical element here in the sense that when one teaches language, he says, one does not teach, I mean, unless you, you're going to learn the dialect specifically, one, one does not learn uh, or teach rather, you know, American or English or Scots English. It's, uh, you go to learn the standard language. It is uh, the, the form that is, uh, you know, that one masters and if you can demonstrate your aptitude and, and, and your learning in theory, you, you're put on an equal, equal right, footing right. to others. Right, right. Uh, sorry, um, I mean, I, if I can sort of interject briefly, um, in a sense, uh, one of the questions that arises to my mind is to what extent does, um, I'm going to use the first names because I know Kevin personally, but to what extent does Kevin um, sort of engage in a uh, sort of transhistorical diachronic study of this kind of phenomena. Uh, one of the things that struck me, uh, and I, I was having a conversation with him in Exeter actually, I think about a year ago now, uh, when we could actually get together in these sorts of events, I was uh, asking him, well, um, would someone like Ibn Battuta, uh, the form of Islam that he himself um, professed and you know was trained as a qadi etc in um, he he would consider Islam in an essentialist form as it were and I th I think that in a sense uh, translates into the standard um, form that you're talking about or what you've also described as cosmopolitan I don't know if um, Kevin uses it seems these are somewhat interchangeable but in right. keeping with the the simile of language standard right. The kind of is the scholarly analog to uh, the so other scholarly. I'm interested in, in thinking about sort of how um, standard is maybe something which is a word that could be used to displace essentialist conceptions of religion. Is that something? Yes. If, is there synonymy there as well in your estimation? So that, that's a good question. And, and Reinhardt begins the book, uh, sorry, Kevin, I'll stick to the first thing, <laughs> uh, begins by critiquing three. Um, prevalent conceptions or, or ways to understand and then this this diversity right. or even to marginalize it so the, the very first form of scholarship and, and this is still very much with us and he talks about how I'm just going to very quickly interject incidentally and, and let people know uh, you can ask your own questions as well we can go up until seven o'clock UK time and so please feel free to write in your questions in the comments and we'll try and address them when we get sort of moments and gaps, but sorry to interrupt you. Um, I'm sure. uh, so the very first of three prevalent forms of scholarship that uh, Kevin critiques is uh, what he calls the naked essentialist narrative. Uh, this is not entirely unlike uh, the standard Islam, but of course it's coming from a different perspective and we, we would use the, the, the capital O uh, Orientalism to refer to it. Um, it is, uh, you know, the Islam of texts, not the Islam that occurs in a kind of privilege uh, in, in actual life. And it privileges this form of Islam. And it also tends to speak about Islam in reificatory ways. Right. Islam says X, Islam says Y. And it tends to locate Islam in a particular place, often the Arab Middle East. And 
uh, these scholars are uh, and journalists, because of course it features very heavily in popular discourse too, and journalism and so on. Right. Uh, these figures are uh, preoccupied with Islam as a as a scholarly tradition and not really able to account for its diversity in any meaningful way. So the dialect and koine forms of Islam, or in particular dialect, are really a kind of other for this scholarship. Right. I, I hope I've done justice to that. Now, um, another, uh, the, of course, their arrival, there have already been attempts to challenge these conceptualizations of, of Islam's diversity as a religion. Right. And uh, one other approach, the third of three he discusses, uh, is um, what he calls the, the Islam's approach. Islam as, uh, you know, the... the Effectively, there being as many Islams as there are practitioners of Islam, as many, uh, so Islam in all of its variety, a right. form that deliberately seeks to, uh, you could say, dethrone standard Islam. And this comes at the expense, and it's very popular, particularly among anthropologists, often who on the basis of fieldwork can talk at great length and with great richness um, about a particular dialect, uh, Kevin would say, forms of Islam. And uh, the, the problem with this approach is that it really neglects what these competing uh, or, or what these, these various forms of Islam as a language, you could say, have in common. So yes, there is great variety and, and, and Kevin, uh, because he's uh, so familiar with anthropological and other forms of literature, is deeply aware of it and furnishes many, many examples, many, uh, many of which you know, I, I hadn't been aware of before. Uh, so Ibn Battuta, by the way, does does feature uh, a couple of times in the text as, as an example, illustrating um, both uh, the shared aspects and the regional uh, divergences and, and contextual divergences. It's, it's not just about region, of course. Um, and uh, the, the second of three, so we've spoken about a naked essentialism, the Islam's right. approach. And there's also a kind of um, more regionally focused approach, which is uh, the kind that one often finds in books with right. titles like Islam in Malaysia, Islam in Egypt, and so on. So while being aware of both uh, Islam's diversity as a religion and a kind of uh, shared narrative, uh, this approach uh, emphasizes that there is a kind of um, uh, Islam somewhere almost as a platonic reality that Muslims are slowly, uh, it's a kind of telos to which, which Muslims are slowly progressing and right. in some periods they, they go further th than in others. Right. Right. Uh, but these are the kind of three main approaches uh, Reinhardt discusses and critiques. And in terms of um, the temporal like, focus... Like, you, you mentioned now uh, um, uh, the, the naked essentialism. Uh, the uh, other two being uh, the Islam's approach, stressing the plurality, so Islam's, and the uh, term he uses for the the is Islam in or the the regional manifestation approach. Um, so these are the three approaches. They're found to be inadequate in various ways. I think wisely, Kevin does not go away and spend hundreds of pages focusing on what's been done previously and picking over, over the faults of these. The book is really very much focused on um, this presentation of an alternate 
Right. And I, I would argue a superior scheme to what's come before. Okay. Uh, and <laughs> I do see uh, the, an interesting question in the comments about Shahab Ahmed. I'll, uh, I'll read it out. So, I mean, um, I'm hoping that some of these videos will also be available, made available as podcasts. And so I'm going to read out this comment and then perhaps you could um, respond to Omar. It says, could you shed light on the project of the late Shahab Ahmed and what Reinhardt aims uh, to do here in terms of the differences and the similarities between those two projects? This is from yes. Amigya. Uh, you can go ahead and respond to that. And there's actually another yeah. question which we'll get to in a moment. It's, um, it, it relates to what I, what I just said. So I think Reinhardt, uh, Kevin rightly makes the decision to focus on, on his presentation and all of the data and, and conceptual schemes um, uh, of, of uh, his kind of vision of lived Islam and how to understand its, its diversity and sameness at the same time. Right. And there is some, clearly a, a fair amount of engagement with other kinds of conceptualization. Uh, I did feel that Zab Ahmed was uh, somewhat conspicuous in his absence. Uh, and it's, uh, What is Islam is, is a book that's received a great amount of airtime and one could easily spend, you know, I teach a whole course based on, on what is Islam. So one could easily get distracted and, and spend too, too much time discussing it. Uh, and Shahab Ahmed does, does discuss uh, a kind of rudimentary form of this scheme in his book and, and critiques it. But I, I don't think it's, it's important to focus on, on Shahab Ahmed. And, and what we get, uh, of course, this Lived Islam is a, is a shorter book, uh, but it is a fully elaborated model. Uh, and you, you, you asked me earlier, Osama, about its temporal focus. Right. I mean, really, there's no limit. So he, examples are given from every conceivable context, both temporal and the, there is a chapter addressing what changes in, in the modern world in particular, that, that it's extremely useful. You know, how does this conceptual scheme get rejigged or refigured in the modern period? Because of course, modernity, however you understand that category, really does change everything. Um, so the, the, the kinds of examples used to illustrate this diversity are you know extremely rich they're taken from all kinds of contexts um and uh particularly with reference when, when speaking about dialect islam to uh, the anthropological uh, literature which uh, really is, is documents at some length the, the, the this bewildering variety and examples he gives are quite shocking actually sometimes before you get to the intriguing examples that you're going to mention. I, I should sort of mention that uh, um, Kevin's just added, and I'm putting it on the screen, what is Islam had scarcely appeared when uh, the manuscript was submitted. So it wasn't sort of uh, a deliberate uh, omission. Of course, of, of course. And uh, I mean, the the fruit before us lived Islam is clearly the, the result of uh, in various ways, decades of gestation. I mean, it's it's a work that could only be produced by a consummate scholar who spent a lot of time reading, right. you know, works of anthropology, but also is is clearly engaged from his published work with the kind of high textual tradition right, right, uh, of, right. of this cosmopolitan <laughs> scholars. So it, it's, it weaves together all of these elements um, in a rhetorically very powerful way. I mean, I'm not sure if it's appropriate, but I've even... 
because uh, it's it's beautifully written. That that's something I, I you know that really strikes the read immediately. Uh, and I, I've even got examples of of the rhetorical power of some passages. Uh, if, if people are interested, you can um, you can feel free to read perhaps one. Uh, and if people want to hear more, um, they can sure. put in a request. And then I'm, I'll get to someone by the name of Jan Islam has asked a question. But we'll get to yes. that. After you perhaps read a passage. So uh, one great example uh, Kevin uses when discussing. Uh, how scholars tend to be much more complacent in their essentialism when it comes to Islam than, say, when it comes to Christianity, which is, is a valuable point and, and very true, of course. He says, um, the, 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 uh, this kind of makes us complacent about Islamic essentialism, as we would never be to the assertion that Joel Austin, uh, Austin sorry, and Hildegard of Bingen preach the same Christian message. Right. Uh, so again, illustrating uh, the, the, this kind of radical dis, uh, disjunction between different forms of Christianity, which you know anyone who knows anything about that religious tradition would not make so glibly, one nonetheless finds the, these kinds of broad uh, generalizations rife in the, you know their legion in, in, in Islamic uh, scholarship. To a large extent, I would um, perhaps suggest that uh, it's a function of the fact that people are. Much less familiar uh, with the Islamic tradition, and so the temptation towards generalization is something which um, is just um, far more readily done. I mean, I'm going to connect this with something that um, I work on, which is Islamism, and you can tell me if you think this is a potentially sort of opposite um, comparison. Mm -hmm. um, when we think about Islamists in, uh, or use that term in the Middle East. Very often, you, they'll make a distinction between radical Islamists, meaning Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and so on, and moderate or mainstream Islamists like the Ikhwan. And to my mind, these two traditions are so um, sort of alien to each other that they, it's like saying that, um, you know, Nazis and liberals are, you know, radical enlightenment versus uh, sort of moderate enlightenment uh, sort of uh, enthusiasts. and. Uh, I think there's a there's an academic case to be made there because they come out of the sort of um, enlightenment. Yes. But um, you know, I think that uh, you know those sorts of choices have very serious repercussions and reflect a kind of flattening and reduction that we sort of apply yes. to societies and, and, and cultures. It's, it's, great that you, it's great that you mentioned the word flattening because, in my mind, one of the examples in which, in which this conceptual scheme is clearly superior to Shahab Ahmed's. Right. And that's not, that's not to denigrate the work of Shahab Ahmed, from which I've benefited a lot myself. But one, one of the superiorities of the scheme is it does not engage in the same flattening uh, of the category, the Islamic, as, as Shahab Ahmed's book. What do I mean by that? Well, for Shahab Ahmed, anything that you know engages meaningfully with text and, and context and so on, uh, can be defined as Islamic, whether it's the wine poetry of Abu Nuwais or, uh, I don't know, figurative art in Central Asia in, in the 15th century. Uh, these are all meaningfully and in some sense equally Islamic. So there is a kind of flattening of this category in, in, in the book, What is Islam? Now, uh, Kevin, on the other hand, produces a scheme that allows us to uh, not only uh, understand and engage with the bewildering diversity that Jahab Ahmed obviously pays attention to, um, but it actually allows us to distinguish between uh, different uh, 
different forms of this diversity. Right. And uh, each of these uh, different, again, thinking of the, the simile of language, right. each of these different uh, right. languages of Islam has, has kind of a very distinct and, and different texture. Right. So it's, uh, it's a kind of nice and well-articulated set of distinctions. Another, another respect in which... Before um, you go on to the, uh, cool. you know, another point, do you mind if I... Um, I've left Jan Islam's question for quite a sure. long time, so I'm just going to put it on the screen. So Jan Islam asks, could you elaborate on the applicability of the language metaphor to the Islamic tradition? Where do we draw the line between standard and non-standard Islam? So it's kind of... Uh, I maybe recapitulate certain uh, aspects of what you're talking about. Um, Great. So it's... Um, the now it's not as though any of these you know the dialect the koine and the standard are hermetically sealed from one another and Reinhard, uh, kevin does specifically address towards the end of the book uh, how these do impact and influence one another so for instance were it not for standard islam the cosmopolitan islam of, of the ulama um, islam would like latin uh, disintegrate and vociferate into mutually incomprehensible languages or languages that are distinct languages. So for instance, you have uh, French and, and Spanish, of course, they, they do share a lot, but they are fundamentally different languages. And the, the function of standard Islam has been slowly to draw Muslims in various ways towards the Koine. So, you know, the fact that Hajj is important, the fact that there is prayer and there are shared rituals. Of course, in, in some respects, um, the, the standard of Islam of the scholars is, is too ambitious and has, has never completely succeeded in its aims. Uh, but that, that is not uh, a weakness, uh, right? Kevin, in fact, says it's, it's an adaptive strength. Right. Um, now, in, in imp important cases, uh, dialect and Koine Islam also impact the scholars and, and their self-understanding and their approach to, to Islam as a religion. So uh, Kevin gives the example of Molid, for instance, um, and uh, even, even I think more uh, strikingly, the cult of saints and tomb veneration. Now, these kinds of practices do seem to have begun very early um, in uh, Michael Penn's book, um, Envisioning Islam, where he talks about the, the earliest Syriac sources on Islam. You know, we do know about shared ritual spaces already in the first century. Think right. of the uh, kind of religious landscape, very diverse religious landscape of the late ancient Near East. So Muslims were sharing religious spaces with Christians already in the first Islamic century. And uh, over time, uh, clearly things like uh, saint veneration and, 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 uh, and devotion to tombs did actually impact um, scholarly culture and standard Islam. Now, uh, Kevin says explicitly, and in, in, in many respects, I think, um, tomb veneration and the cult of saints is really a great test case because, you know, very often you find this, these kinds of practices dismissed as popular religion, where in fact, anyone who reads legal texts and so on will know, as Kevin points out, that actually the scholars do share and participate in these the great majority of the time. Of course, you do have critics like Ibn Taymiyyah uh, and yeah. so on, but um, most scholars were participants in this culture, yeah. Right. Um, when you say participants, I mean, uh, Ibn Taymiyyah is a, a sort of a notable maverick in many respects, but, um, you know, there are, there are degrees of participation as well, and there are of types of activities where the scholars draw a line, and I think 
that's also an interesting uh, and important and Kevin speaks about scholars in some sense being bilingual so right. remember I, I spoke about standard Islam as the Islam of no place and no time because it's a sort of scholarly construct that's meant to be universal yeah. um, but it's it's not the Islam that's necessarily practiced in in any in any context. What you right. find is always always involves elements of dialect and coining. Right, right, right. Um, so you know it will always involve you know prayer and fasting, and these will be inflected locally. So you know it, it, scholarly or standard Islam it really is a, is a scholarly construct, and it's sort of pure and it exists in texts. Right. In the same way, you would not really find standard English spoken on the street. You know, it's always a kind of right. uh, some some form of, of dialect, right. uh, blending elements of the standard language and reflecting them, of course. But yes, still still kind of uh, diverse and divergent. So, and Ibn Taymiyyah yeah, does uh, does actually feature in, in as it uh, as a kind of illustrative example. Um, uh, admittedly, as Kevin says. Um, uh, though he recognizes Ibn Taymiyyah fairly marginal in his own context. Of course, he had many critics among the proponents of standard Islam himself. Um, he remains, and the wording Kevin uses, something like the one of the most uh, influential, especially in the modern period, and um, articulate, uh, I'd say, uh, cosmopolitan Islamic critics of of the dialect and the koine. Fascinating. I mean, what's interesting about Ibn Taymiyyah is it's true that the modern period has brought him out in a very significant way, in a way that I think we still, still we are yet to understand exactly why that's happened. But um, in the pre-modern period, I mean, if you read the biography of the Dhabi, um, he repeatedly stresses that you know his his writings reached the horizons you know it, they went everywhere and he was very sort of like he would write things and they would be disseminated very yes I, dissemination is uh, is an important question and you know i would be remiss not to mention ahmed shamsi's recent book uh, which does have a, a really good chapter on uh, it's a great book but it has a, a very interesting chapter on ibn Taymiyyah and the publication and discovery of his works Right. So not, none of Ibn Taymiyyah's works were printed before the 20th century, and right. uh, the manuscripts were mostly located in, in you know, Syria and Egypt and so on. Right. And even among his advocates, like the, the Wahhabis of Nejd in Central Arabia, you know, the, it's, it's not clear that they actually enjoyed a uh, <laughs> certainly not unfettered access to his, right. his works. And, and, right. and I think um, Shamsi demonstrates this very, very persuasively. Mm. Uh, so Shamsi in his book, uh, sort of rediscovering the Islamic classics. I, mm -hmm. I'm a bit conscious of time, so we have about 22 minutes left. Um, we want to sort of stick to the one hour six to seven o'clock, um, and I want to do a couple of things, Omar, and you can sort of let me know if this yeah. works as well. So I want to encourage people if you have any questions or want to have any sort of particular um, uh, direction for this discussion, please feel free to sort of participate through the comments. Um, I actually wanted to switch gears a little and ask perhaps certain questions of a slightly more theological orientation. I mean, that's an expression I'm using very sort of loosely here, um, but in the sense of, you know, as someone who is in a, uh, you know, trained in the traditions of the ulama of the Indian subcontinent and the Sunni tradition, um, what I've sometimes described as neo-traditionalist, um, you know, as a Hanafi, uh, working within uh, sort of the uh, um, the traditions of 
training in fiqh and uh, if that and also in to a certain extent in tasawwuf of a certain orthodox kind that is associated with the um uh, darul ulums of the indian subcontinent uh, one of the things i want to pick on and perhaps push back against and perhaps this is you know this is a case where i've not read kevin's book yet so you know uh, hopefully in future once i've been able to engage the text more seriously i'll be able to reflect on this uh, myself as well more seriously is that so much of this is embedded within traditions and practices of the ulama themselves, this bilinguality, if that's the right way of describing it. So you've described the ulama as potentially bilingual in Kevin's work. Yeah, this is And so you have, um, you know, the ideas of, for me, two particular genres. One is fatwa, which is about nazila, which is about something new, which is about dealing with the exigent case. And the also for me, Sufism uh, and the Sheikh very often dealing with the very, uh, you know, real life stresses that require a kind of occasionally departing from the letter of the law in order to deal with the pastoral concern of the um, community or the individual. And I think those two sorts of things suggest that um, that flexibility is built in within certain genres of Sharia, so to speak, like that, like Tasawwuf. Uh, and I'm reminded of, you know, ideas of um, people like Nawawi, who in Al-Minhaj, his commentary on Sahih Muslim, remarks that, um, you know, the ma'lum min din bid-darura is what constitutes, you know, if you if you reject something like this, that constitutes disbelief, kufr. But uh, if you live far from the metropolises of the Muslims, the Amsar al-Muslimin, uh, or your hadithu ahdim bil Islam, or something words to that effect, that you're relatively new to the religion, and you deny something which is it doesn't necessarily take you out of the religion. Madalung has an article which he talks about the Hanafis saying outside of Darul Islam, even if you reject fundamentals, and it's basically the same message of the deen, as long as you call yourself a Muslim, you're a Muslim, something along those lines. So uh, that seems to suggest, that, you know, extreme latitude, so to speak, within what constitutes Islam. It's not ideal, but it's not sort of, and I'd, I'd be interested to know where exactly Kevin's analysis, how, how this can uh, falls into Kevin's own sort of conception of this. Good question. So Kevin explicitly acknowledges that scholars do often accommodate themselves to uh, certainly coiny forms of Islam and even dialect to some extent. Right. Um, and you know, it's 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 not a a kind of they're, they're not purely passive. So at, at times they do reject uh, dialect practices they find abhorrent, and at other times they even embrace them. So it's it's a kind of dynamic process. Um, and briefly interject. I mean, I don't think anyone like um, the Hanafis that Madeline is talking about, or Anawi is actually talking about embracing any of that stuff, right? They're saying, this is an unfortunate situation, but under those circumstances, we can still consider them part of the Ummah, so to speak. So, yeah. Yes. Um, I'm thinking of the, the example Madalon gives, uh, and it's discussed by Ulrich Rudolf as well in his books that Hanafism spread to certain parts of Central Asia because it had a very minimalistic understanding of what it meant to be a Muslim and that therefore could be embraced. Right. by many people and all you needed was verbal profession of your Islam and this was adequate right. and so on. Um, so you, I, you're right in the sense that these distinctions are to be made and you're, you're right as well in pointing to the importance of genre. Now, fatwa is interesting 
because you find competing impulses in the Fatwa literature. Um, and I do wonder about certain texts like uh, Ibn al-Hajj's uh, or infamous uh, al-Madkhal, which is, to some extent, I mean, it's wonderful for the anthropologist uh, in some, because it really documents diversity in religious practice. And you could say it belongs to this genre of Hawadith and Bid'ah literature. Uh, but you find, you know, these competing impulses in the fatwa literature, you find ulama who denounce contemporary practices. Right. And right. Kevin talks at length about uh, Ibn Taymiyyah's Iqtidat Sirat al-Mustaqeem. But it really depends on where you look. And there are divergent trends among scholars themselves. Some are much more purist than others. Some are more willing, some are what... Um, uh, Kevin calls, uh, is it dialectical? They're pragmatists, in, in, in other words. Right. Right. Uh, so competing trends among scholars and, you know, even the, so in addition to this conceptual scheme not being a flattened one, unlike Shahab Ahmed's, even within uh, the domain of standard Islam, there is uh, certain uh, room uh, for, for divergence and pre-modern Islam is, is uh, to some extent, at least a pluralistic tradition, you know, four schools of law and, right. and schools of theology and so on. Um, we do have a question, <clears throat> and uh, I'd like to stress again, we have 15 minutes, if anyone has any questions uh, relating to anything that Omar said, or I, I myself have said, uh, and particularly um, in relation to Kevin Reinhardt's book, um, uh, Lived Islam, which is the center of the discussion right now, please feel free to ask in the next 15 minutes. Um, Jan Islam asks another question, actually. So he says, you mentioned Islamists. I'm just going to show it <clears throat> so that people can see on the screen. You mentioned uh, Islamists earlier and the diversity within those who fall under the under the label. Uh, and I was speaking about the usage. Um, bringing back standard uh, the standard Islam discussion. Who are we to declare one group as more legitimate or standard than the other? The, than the other comes in another message. Now, I mean, this is actually, uh, if I can add just a comment here. Um, I remember speaking about ISIS at the LSE for the Islamic Society that invited me, I think this was in 2015 or 20, perhaps 2016. And um, I, I remarked that, uh, well, you know, they, their interpretation of Islam is incorrect, right? And um, now, and, and the sort of mainstream uh, sort of Islamic interpretation rejects it and, and therefore it is incorrect was kind of my argument, if I recall correctly, it's been a few years. And what's interesting there is I was then picked up on by a doctoral student saying that, wait, this is just an interpretation of Islam. What, who are you to say that that is correct or not correct? And I think, you know, that highlights an important point. Um, the distinction between, you know, if I was being a Western academic, uh, and I think those lines are being quite blurred now because I am a Western academic as well, but I can't very strongly distinguish between my identity as a Western academic and the fact that I'm also being trained in fatwa giving, for example, trained in iftar. And so in a sense, I am adjudicating an Islamic question by saying their interpretation of this is incorrect. And I think, you know, that's perfectly legitimate for a Muslim to engage in that sort of um, process. And I think that we do those sorts of things all the time on all sorts of questions. Um, you know, we're talking about religion here in wider society, people have to adjudicate what constitutes someone who's British. And in a sense, there's an essence to being British. 
um, carrying the passport is more or less you know what that is today. So I think um, you know I just wanted to highlight that there's a kind of um, an unusual positionality that people like myself experience, and and Omar, I think you know you will probably experience that as well, even if it's not you know quite so. Um, it, it doesn't cause quite so much uh, um, anxiety, anxiety <laughs> angst as it does for me. But yes. So, but um, absolutely. So, in his discussion of yeah, so in his discussion of uh, attempts to conceptualize this diversity, Kevin uh, highlights, particularly when it comes to the essentialist or naked essentialist approach which, uh, you know, flourished after 9-11, as I said, there is a strange tendency to make, you know, theological or normative claims about Islam. So if you're a non-Muslim academic and you say this is Islam and this is not Islam, Kevin suggests rightly that you are in fact uh, making a normative claim about what Islam legitimately is and is not. Right. Now, uh, if you were to put it, uh, phrase it as a sort of sociological observation that this is view is mainstream and this view is not mainstream, you, you would be on, on safer ground. But nonetheless, uh, still legion in, in, in scholarship today, uh, even implicit in um, the writings of uh, anthropologists who adopt an Islam's approach, uh, you know, uh, for which uh, standard Islam is a sort of other uh, you find uh, this reification and also this um, way of speaking about Islam that, that, that makes problematic normative claims. Now, uh, one of the advantages of uh, this particular conceptual scheme is that uh, you do not have to have a position on whether dialect or standard uh, one is superior to the other. This is in important respects, at least, and I, I use the term advisedly, I, I know, um, you know, nothing is new, truly neutral, but it, it is a kind of value neutral conceptual scheme that one can employ um, analytically. And it avoids some of the pitfall of, pitfalls of Shahab Ahmed's approach. For instance, if you, if, if you call ISIS Islamic, uh, that is extremely charged even if it is you know, analytically correct from Shahab Ahmed's perspective, and he says you know, that um, Islam is neither irenic or violent, it's, it's all of these things and more. Um, but Kevin's scheme is one that I think you can um, adopt and deploy um, you know, without, uh, without engaging in this kind of normative or, uh, or, or kind of seemingly controversial um, uh, these kinds of claims. Uh, so let me maybe offer a, perhaps a counterpoint of sorts to that, which is that for Muslim believers, it's very often a you know a matter of principle and a, a matter of belief that I do believe something to be the truth, and I don't want to treat this as though this is all sort of like you know these are all options that are available, etc. And so. Um, you know, in some respects, I think the uh, this sort of analytical exercise is uh, very, very helpful for a certain type of uh, engagement with the Islamic tradition. But it's not necessarily something that, for example, a um, a Muslim who 
and perhaps you can correct me on this, who um, wants to recognize the um, sacred texts are coming to uh, sort of require of me certain things, that they can necessarily embrace a, this kind of value-neutral proposition. Um, yeah. I've, I've argued elsewhere, and um, I'm still trying to develop this argument uh, that value neutrality, you know, can can be quite chimerical. Um, uh, let me just add one other point, which is a, a conversation I had with a co former colleague of yours, Exeter, Ishtvan, um, and uh, we did a, an external exam together. And um, uh, in the course of the conversation, um, he was talking about, and this is very common in the lecture theatre when we're talking about Islam, people will say, well, there's no real true Islam out there, right? I mean, these are all assertions made by interested parties. And so it's not the job of the scholar to say there is a true Islam out there. And I, I, I sort of um, pushed back and I said, well, why can there be a true Britain or a true Europe, but not a true Islam? And we actually have legal adjudication processes to judge what's true British and what's not true British. And so, you know, you might say in an academic discussion, well, I mean, like, there's no true essence to this. Yes, it's a, it's an intellectual construct of us, but we treat them as these true entities that have very real implications in our real lives. So, um, you know, I think that there's something to be said for that. And thank you uh, for all those asking questions in the comments. I hope we will be able to get back to them just after Omar sort of gets back no. to me. I've just asked. So uh, you know, Kevin would recognize that you, yes, you can speak about Islam and you can you can reify it as much as you like if you're giving a Friday khutbah, right? Uh, but that is nonetheless somewhat inadequate. You know, that vision of Islam cannot really account for all of this tremendous and bewildering diversity that we find. And Kevin does state explicitly, Islam has no no essence and also that uh, you know it, it does not you know it is not this platonic form right uh, now i do believe to some extent at least yes i know people will say it's naive to speak of objectivity uh, but my kind of considered view is that for scholarship to up and you know the emic ethic distinction and can one really make it and all of this stuff inside or outside the right i think it's it's very hard to actually distinguish these things from one another but without a basic commitment uh to this distinction in one form or another right it then becomes impossible to separate you know what you do in a uh, and I, uh, you know, I'm not saying they're hard and fast boundaries, but you know, what you do in a seminary context from what what happens in in a university. So, analytically, I think these distinctions are useful, even if we might problematize, you know, the boundaries and say, well, everything is always political, and you know, there's always a project somewhere in the background. That's perfectly fine. And interestingly, I, I had these questions in mind when reading the book, and Kevin mentions that anthropologists. Uh, for them, dialect Islam is all good, hmm. and I uh, and he says their sentiment is not incorrect. Hmm. So you, <laughs> I don't think it's an. Un I hope it's not an uncharitable reading to say you know if you're a non-Muslim academic, yeah. uh, you know even if you spend a lot of time as Kevin surely has decades and decades writing about uh, about standard Islam, yeah. uh, you're you're not necessarily invested uh, in it in the same way that a Muslim. 
uh, who happens to be an academic. Maybe and that's part of the course. I mean, what, 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 what would you expect really? Nonetheless, I, I still think it's a valuable and fruitful uh, attempt to kind of engage with these questions. And I should say, I know we're approaching the end, but uh, one of the, as, as well as the fact that it's written so beautifully and uh, is, I think, a fruitful attempt to, attempt to engage with these questions. One of, one of the things I always look for in conceptualizations of Islam and its diversity and what is the Islamic and what have you, that this book really answers to, hmm. uh, much like Marshall Hodgson's distinction between Islamic and Islamic hate, is the fact that it's portable. You know, I can explain to undergraduate students in, in two minutes this conceptual scheme and does it fit the data? Does it actually enrich our understanding and, and I, you know, give us kind of scholarly tools we can bring to bear in our work? I would say yes, you know, emphatically to all of those questions. So the, for me, the portability of a conceptual framework is extremely important, particularly when it comes to things like teaching. And, and this is an eminently uh, portable, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's elegant, but also you, you, know, you can discuss it in, in simpl simplified form. And, and I think in that respect, it's, it's, a great success. it's 200 pages, it's shorter than your average monograph. And I mean, I think we want to encourage people to read it, grapple with it. Um, Omar, I'm a bit conscious that we're short on time. And we do have a number of comments, um, which I'd like to at least sort of cycle through. And then, you know, Kevin did want to sort of say something. So I, uh, I guess, um, Kevin, um, essentially wanted to thank people for you know, joining the session and, um, you know, engaging this text. And um, if, Kevin, you would like to say something specific, please feel free to add it in the comments. But is it okay, uh, Omar, with your permission, I'm going to just have a look at the comments. And, uh, you know, there have been a number of questions. Forgive us for not really being able is to it, Is it not possible to bring Kevin on via video or...? Um, unfortunately, no, not. Um, mm. uh, I, I would have to sort of send him. Uh, it, it would be a bit of a process. Okay. So, um, I'm just going to, um, and, and thank you again, Omar, this has been really sort of eye-opening on so many levels uh, as a discussion, and we didn't want to create kind of fatigue for the online viewers by dragging this over an hour, but we do hope to come every sort of um, week at this time, five to six UK, uh, six to seven UK time on Thursday evenings. And um, I, you mentioned Marshall Hodgson, and, and I would be remiss, I, I forgot in the beginning of this session to highlight that we're adapting his use of the term Islamicate. Um, this is not, uh, you know, he used Islamic phenomena in uh, Muslim societies that had, in a sense, been touched by Islam, but were not really manifestations of religious dimensions, strictly speaking. And we're extending the metaphor here to look at Islamic studies as a field uh, through the literature of, of that tradition of scholarship. Um, I just want to maybe uh, read a little of um, sort of uh, comments and questions. I think these will just be things for us to reflect on, uh, those of us who are watching, but not necessarily being able to. So um, uh, Yusuf Al-Afifi asks, Dr. Osama suggested that the term neo-traditionalism picks out madhabis in the modern period, yet many recent papers employing the term suggest a necessary link between neo-traditionalism and autocratic regimes. Does neo-traditionalism imply autocratic? Um, seems to seems a more precise usage should be highlighted in the contingency of yeah. the I should interject, and one thing I really wish there was more time for us to discuss is, of course, everything changes in the modern period. Yeah. So these categories and distinctions do not operate in quite the same way. 
um, and, and the kind of key development here is, is the, the emergence of the, of the nation state and its unmediated access to its citizens. And of course, it privileges particular forms of Islam and inculcates them through mass education and, and media and so on. That is an extremely important dimension of the book and, and really one of the most enriching aspects of, of Kevin's discussion. Uh, if it's okay for me to do a bit of a shameless self-plug um, for the benefit of Yusufil uh, Afifi, um, I did. I have written a paper called "A neo uh, Sufis and um, uh, Arab Politics." That's the sort of main title, and there I, I highlight that not all neo-traditionalists are autocracy-friendly. Um, I, for example, um, you know, in my when I wear my sort of uh, confessional hat. I'm very critical of autocracy, and I consider my my own religious training to be neo-traditionalist. So, you know, in, in that in the in the sense that I'm trained in the Hanafi madhab, um, I, I'm trained in a tradition that more or less valorizes Sufism, and uh, broadly speaking, in my aqidah, I, I usually don't don't comment no. very much. <laughs> I said uh, on both of our parts, this was a self-indulgent enterprise, and I'm afraid I have to reiterate that. But I'm aware we're, we're over time now. Uh, in short, if I could, if I could end by saying, this is a fantastic book that I would commend without hesitation to I really anyone who works on any aspects of of Islamic studies. I mean, it's one of the very rare books where you can make such a recommendation, and uh, even outside of the field, in fact. It is beautifully written. It is a relatively quick read. It's not, not an overly long book. And it is important. Uh, I'm surprised uh, that so far it hasn't been as widely engaged with as, as, as one would expect for a book of this scope, ambition, uh, and, and it's, it's an achievement. So do, do go away and, and, and read the book. I encourage you. Uh, and I'd like to reiterate the same, but I will, I will do this uh, you know, once I've read it myself, so to speak, so as not to be. <laughs> inappropriate uh, or hypocritical. Um, I would like, um, Omar, just to mention next week's book. Um, yes. You had a text, so please briefly Fantastic. introduce that. So uh, next week, uh, same, same time and place, we will be discussing James Pickett's excellent Polymaths of Islam, yeah. uh, which is really a discussion I, I've read and, and taken copious notes on it already, of uh, scholarly culture, particularly in Bukhara, from about the mid 18th century until the Soviet conquest of the city in, in 1920. So uh, again, a magisterial work, of course, narrower than Kevin's in scope, uh, but nonetheless enlightening. Thank you so much, uh, Amar, for giving us an hour of your time. And thank you everyone who's joined us for this hour. Thank you again, Kevin, who has been kindly kind enough to sort of uh, join us from afar from Dartmouth. Um, this is one of the more positive aspects of what's been a challenging year for all of us that we can actually connect in this way um, across you know uh, geographical boundaries and you know inshallah we will have many more opportunities uh, of this kind until next week um, i bid you all farewell thank you everyone uh, thank you for listening in and in particular to kevin for uh, allowing us to dis discuss his book, which I'm sure I, I haven't done justice to in this very short period. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum. All right. So.